Last time we were together, we looked at 2 Chronicles chapter 6, and Solomon now is in, um, he's upon the throne after David's death. Now Solomon, his son, takes over the throne and will reign for 40 years. And finally, having uh, built the temple and bringing all the articles in the temple, Solomon gives a speech, remember last week as we looked at that, and he gave a speech to the people, and then he prayed to the Lord, and we saw Solomon's prayer of dedication. Can we lower that just a little bit more, Dave, if you don't mind? And Solomon prayed to the Lord uh, many things. Uh, It's a pretty lengthy prayer, really lasting from... um, verse 12 all the way down through verse 42 of chapter 6. And we looked at that last week, and so let's dive right into this next chapter. And I believe we're just going to look at chapter 7. We might get through chapter 8, but uh, it's very possible. We'll just do 7 tonight. But notice, after all of this, after his dedication and his prayer before God and before all the people, it says that when Solomon, verse 1, had finished praying... And again, praying that very lengthy prayer, verses 12 through 42 of the previous chapter. Notice that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Now, this is a pretty significant thing that is happening. In fact, I, there are only two times that I'm aware of that both of these things occurred around the same time, meaning that the Lord consumed a sacrifice that was on the altar, and then at the same time, or very shortly thereafter, filling the temple with his presence. And the presence of God would be sort of like a cloud. And oftentimes, you hear of this word cloud, and it's a Uh, Here's a fancy word, and I don't think I'm pronouncing it right, but a theophanic cloud, like theophany. It's a theophanic cloud. It basically represents God. I mean, you remember when the children of Israel were being led through the desert that the pillar of fire would rest upon it at night and a cloud over it by, over the temple, over the uh, tabernacle, excuse me, by the daytime. And the only time that they would move from the place that they were at is if that pillar of, or that cloud moved or the pillar of fire moved, then they would follow it because they were following the Lord uh, through the desert wanderings. And, and I find it interesting, you know, so often we, we think about that and um, we think of how long it took Israel to get from Egypt to the promised land. It really should have only taken them a few weeks, maybe two weeks, two and a half weeks, if, if that. And yet it took them 40 years. And we know that that is not necessarily um, uh, their fault, and and it is in a sense, because God knew what he had to get out of his people, because Egypt was still in his people. And so bringing them into this promised land that he had given to him, there was some work to be done on the hearts of the people. And oftentimes we we, we think that they were just uh, lax, and and they were. They certainly were. They weren't acting in faith. They weren't resting in the promises of God. And even when God sent in spies, they came back with an evil report. But God knew this about them, and he, he, he held them 
in that place, and he was preparing them for that, in the, during that 40-year desert experience, he was throttling them, if you will, because he knew that they weren't ready to receive what he had given to them. Their faith was still so young. In fact, many of them didn't even have very much faith. He needed to uh, bring about this trust, this relationship between them. He had to bake that, if you will, into their hearts, and they had to come to understand it. And God had to prove them in the wilderness. And you remember that many of them, that whole first generation of those who came out of Egypt, they perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And so God knew this about them. And so when God is halting them and having them stay at a certain location for a certain amount of time, it wasn't for any, uh, just because God felt like it. He knew there was work to be done. There was work to be done. And remember that the promised land is not a picture of heaven. A lot of old hymns and a lot of old uh, divines have said that, you know, the promised land is like heaven. Well, if your heaven still has giants in it, you might want to think about that. But the, the promised land really is the mature walk of the believer, the walk of the believer, because they learned to trust God during that, during that time, and they were still growing. So, but the, I don't know about you, but the promised land that I'm looking forward to is void of giants. <laughs> it's going to be void of giants. It's going to be void of this old flesh arguing with God all the time. Does anybody argue with God? In your heart, at least? You, know, you may not say it out loud because you're holy, you know, but you know, I, have a, I have this thing where I, I argue with God internally, and, and I, don't, I don't show it, and I don't speak it to you, but God knows my heart. And he's like, Rob, you're just a nasty rebel. That's what you are. You're just a rebel. And I'm like, yes, Lord. <laughs> that's a, by the way, that's the appropriate way to answer when the Lord says something about you. Just say, yes, Lord. Don't argue with him. Just say, you know. <laughs> and so God brings them through. He brings them through this desert place. And, and, but that cloud was the very presence of God. And here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we see this cloud, this very presence of God. In, in a, in a, in a, and I love the Bible when it says, no one has seen God at any time and lived, right? No one has seen him because God is spirit and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God allows himself to be veiled, if you will. The only, the only way that we have ever seen God, remember, is, is Jesus. He, was the, he is the Logos, the representation of God, the very thought behind God, the very everything that's embodied in God was embodied in Jesus Christ. That's why they call him the Logos. But, but we've never seen God. No one has seen God and lived. That's what the Bible says. And so he veils himself because of his glory. And thank God we're getting new bodies because I'm going to need a new body. Because if I'm going to stand before the presence of Almighty God, this flesh right now, and by the way, yours too, no offense, it's going to disintegrate. <laughs> if we were to stand in front of him because of the brightness and the purity of the holiness of who he is. We would just fall. We would just vanish. The brightness of his countenance, we would disintegrate. And so we need a new body that can withstand eternity. A new body, like Jesus' body. And so here in Second Chronicles 7, we see this cloud, and there's only 
a couple times in Scripture that I know of this happening specifically where you know, uh, the, the Lord rained down fire from heaven on the sacrifice. Now, he's rained down fire on individuals. He's rained down fire on other things and destroyed it. But this is the, you know, the, one of the few times where he rains down fire and consumes what they have put on the sacrifice in their worship of God. And in doing so, what is he saying? I accept it. I accept you. In fact, I accept you because of the sacrifice. Because your sin has been taken care of on that, on that altar where you deserve. And does anybody here say that they don't deserve death? I mean, the Bible says that we've all sinned. So I deserve death, but what he's given me is grace. What he's given me is forgiveness. What he's given me is the Spirit of God within me. What he's given me is this blessed hope, knowing that one day I'm going to spend an eternity with my king when he comes in the rapture or until death take me physically. I'm going to be in his presence forevermore. And I don't deserve that, but that's why it's called grace. It's unmerited favor. You cannot earn it. And discouraged is the person who tries to earn the grace of God. If you're one of those people who tries to earn the grace of God, you're going to be probably miserable to be around because you're always going to be striving and just fighting and trying to, and, and being so discouraged with yourself and, and hating everybody else too because they're just like you. And that's the truth. Don't try to perfect yourself to make yourself right with God. You've been made right in the blood of Christ, in your faith in him. It's by grace that you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, because we would if we could. And so... There's one other time that I see this kind of thing happening, and I think it's very interesting. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. We're going to see when Moses... Now, remember where we're at right now. Solomon is inaugurating the temple that he has built. But think about the tabernacle of Moses... Hundreds of years prior, 400 years, some 400 years prior to this, there came a point when Israel, when they came out of Egypt in the desert, they were only there for about a year, and God gave them the, the blueprint of, uh, gave to Moses the blueprint of the tabernacle. And then they inaugurated it, and they brought all the temples, all the, excuse me, all of the, uh, um, uh, the things for the temple, the, the table of showbread, the table, uh, the altar of incense, the lampstand, and certainly the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil, and certainly in the courts out front, the, the altar and the laver for the sacrifices. But notice what it says in verse 34 of Exodus 40. It says, Then the cloud, after they had finished preparing the tabernacle, of Moses, it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you see a parallel here? We just read the very same thing here in Second Chronicles 7, verse 1 and 2. The very same thing happened. God saying, I will make my name here. I will, I will allow your sacrifices to be here, and this is where I will meet you. 
In verse 34 there, it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord, this theophanic cloud, this Shekinah glory, that's a made-up term by some rabbis, but basically it's, it's speaking of this, this, this presence of God in, in a cloud that it filled the tabernacle. In verse 35 it says, And Moses was not, was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And whenever the cloud was taken up, from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and the fire was over it by night in the sight of all, their, all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now shortly after this, when the cloud filled the temple, it tells us in Leviticus chapter 9, when the, when the priests were sanctified and they were ordered and they began their ministry, and it was shortly after what we just read in Exodus 40, it says, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, and he blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. And notice, Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering, and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now think about this, folks. <laughs> think, put yourself in their sandals and, and be at that place. Can you imagine? You build this structure. Now it's been 400 years prior that Moses erected the, the tabernacle, and now they have a permanent structure. And the very same thing happens. God making himself known that he approves of what is happening, and he will be with them. And isn't it true? Around this time of year, don't you get cards in the mail? It says, Emmanuel. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. <laughs> He's with us. As he was, even with the children of Israel, God is with us. And more importantly, he's within us. As the church, we have this wonderful privilege of having the Spirit of God in us, indwelling us and conforming us, shaping us, changing us from glory to glory, you know, sanctifying us, because that is his will for us, sanctification. But notice, the same thing that happened when, God, when Moses inaugurated the tabernacle, now God is doing the same thing. He's answering by fire, consuming the altar, or what was on the altar, and then he's, his presence fills the temple. He had filled the tabernacle, and now it fills Solomon's temple. So much so, notice verse 2, And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. So the glory of the Lord filling the house occurred at least three different times in the Scripture. And there's, there's actually, you can get really technical about this, and, and there's more instances, but I'm just going to give you the three slam dunks, the real easy ones. We saw it, we just read it in, in Exodus chapter 40, right? Verse 34 through 38. The dedication of tabernacle of Moses, that, that, the, that the Lord appeared in a cloud. And here, in this chapter, the dedication of Solomon's temple. Again, the cloud filling the temple. And when is that cloud going to come again? You could argue, and, and i got to say this because somebody will say, well, what about Jesus when he came into the temple and Herod's temple? Well, Jesus really was the, the only thing that was holy that came into that temple. <laughs> but the next time that we'll see the glory of God in this form, uh, in the form of a cloud filling the temple again, is going to be when? 
and the millennium. Yes, it tells us that in Ezekiel chapter 43. In Ezekiel 43 through 46, 47, that's really where it speaks of this millennial temple that is yet to be built. There's no temple on the Temple Mount right now. But we know that during, uh, at the very end, when Christ comes back to the earth physically, that he's going to build a temple in the beginning of his millennial reign. And Ezekiel has the blueprint of that temple, exactly what it's going to be. The dimensions. I mean, you could get several construction companies ready to go because when Jesus comes back, these guys can go, well, we already know what to do. He's like, well, do it. Now, whether they do it, somebody else does it, or he just makes it happen, who knows? And you know, honestly, I don't even care. All I know is that I'm going to be there. Are you going to be there? If you're a member of the church, you will be there. You'll be there. And so in that millennial temple, the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God. But notice in verse 3. So when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, And the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement, and they worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Now, this wonderful refrain, in your margin of your Bible, write down a few verses, okay? You'll see this refrain in Psalm 106, verse 1. You'll see it in Psalm 107, verse 1. You'll see it in Psalm 118, verse 1, and verse 29. And you'll also see it, finally, in Psalm 136, verse 1. Psalm 106, the very first mention of it, says this. Simply what we had here. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Isn't that wonderful? Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. You know, Thanksgiving is so wonderful. Just to give thanks to the Lord. So often I come to the Lord with just my laundry list of things that I'm complaining about. But to actually come to Him first and worship Him, right? And Jesus said to His disciples, and this is how you ought to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, start off with worship. Start off with worship, giving Him thanks for what He has done. And that's worship, giving Him thanks for what He has done, for who He is, You know, talk about his attributes, the things that nobody else has. And honestly, we can't even fathom many of these attributes. I mean, get your head around omniscience, knowing all things. I I don't even remember the things I forgot. And God knows everything, right? He does. He can't learn anything. Oh my gosh, what are you saying? No. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's got it all under control. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Not one of them falls without him knowing about it. He knows the minutia of every cell in your body. Every single cell in your body he is aware of and what it's doing, its function, its purpose, what it's going to do three months from now, what it's going to do a year from now. Is it going to go rogue? Is it going to be cancerous? He knows whether... Our diet and our culture and our lack of exercise. He knows the results of all those things. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's nobody more powerful than him, and not even Satan. Satan is nothing compared to God. Never forget that, Christian, because so often we put the devil on the same par as Jesus. But remember, the Bible says that Satan is a created being. Lucifer is a created being. 
And Jesus is the only uncreated being. The only uncreated being. Everything else was created by him and for him were they created. You can read about it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Thank you very much. Right? That's what the Bible says. But this same refrain, praise the Lord, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. The same exact refrain is sung here and was also sung in at least three other places in Scripture. And this is kind of interesting because d- during David's song of thanksgiving, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant in and placed it into the tabernacle that he had erected for it, and this was recorded for us in First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34. Remember, just prior to Solomon's reign, that David, brought the ark into Jerusalem. Remember what a joyous celebration that was? And David erected a tabernacle just for the ark of the covenant. The other uh, pieces of the tabernacle and the old tabernacle of Moses was still in Gibeon, about five or six miles away. But David brought in the ark. And when he brought it in, what did they say? They said the same exact phrase. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. You can read it. First Chronicles 16, 34. And then certainly when Solomon brought in the Ark of the Covenant, and, we, um, and, and he brought um, the Ark of the Covenant into the new temple that he had just built. We read about that a couple of weeks ago in Second Chronicles 5, 13. What did they say when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into its final resting place. For he is good. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. The same exact phrase, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And did you know also that when the captives, going forward now in time, so here is Solomon's reign of Judah, going all the way down to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was the last king of Judah before uh, Judah went into captivity in Babylon. But when they, after their 70-year captivity in Babylon, remember they came back to the land? And they began to rebuild Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. What did they say? The same thing. They said the exact same phrase. They said... Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And then the king, back in our text for tonight, in verse 4, back in Second Chronicles 7, it says, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before Jehovah. Whenever you see LORD in all caps in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh. Or Jehovah. It's called Yahweh because the Jews, they revered the name of God so much that they didn't even say it out of, out of just reverence for his name. They wouldn't even say Yehovah or Jehovah. They would take out the vowels and they would leave the consonants and it was Y-H-W-H. Just those four little characters, those four little consonants. And here's a fancy word for you. It was called the Tetragrammaton. Four for tetra, grammar, you know, whatever. Four words, basically. Four letters. Because his name was so holy. Think of having a reverence for God like that. You know, I fear that that's something in our culture, even in the church here in the 21st century that we've lost, is a real reverence for God. Somehow we've made, we've brought God down to our level and we see him as, and you hear people say this too, 
very uh, flippantly and very nonchalantly, ir- uh, disrespect in my opinion, to say, oh, I talked to the man upstairs today. And, you know, or they, they make God sound like he's some genie in a lamp that they can just rub the thing and, and pray. And you got to answer now. I've rubbed it really hard for half an hour. I rubbed this lamp. I have you got to do it now. I've double dog dared you. Now you have to do it. Right? No, God is not some rabbit's foot that we stick in our pocket. He's almighty God. And he deserves our reverence. He demands our respect for who he is. And yet some in the church, they treat him like he's, like, they, like he does their bidding. And I'm sorry to say that that's not the way it is. Everyone in the church should get on our face <laughs> and reverence the great king of kings. I don't push him around. I don't demand things of him. Rather, I listen to what he has to say and I get in line. And I don't care if I'm last. Right? That's the attitude we need to have because I want to be among that number. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, how I want to be in that number. When the saints go marching in. Right? I want to be in that number. I don't care if I'm the last guy closing the door when we come in. I don't care. I don't care if I'm the guy uh, washing the sandals and the feet of people as I come in. And the fact that I'm there at all is a mystery of mysteries. Thank God for his grace. Can anybody relate? Yes. He's a holy God. He demands. And yet the wonderful thing about it is we don't have to approach him in, in some kind of, you know, you know, fear like you would approach a father who's about ready to whip you. No, you don't have to approach him that way. I think we ought to have the heart that reverences him that way, but he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because he cre- he's so approachable that he makes you feel like you can just jump up in his arms, but never forget <laughs> who he really is. I think that's a good juxtaposition. Be that free and, and be his child and be willing to be able to run into his arms and to tell him everything, to share your heart with him and the deepest, darkest, ugliest things and even the joyful things. Share it all with him. You don't need to be afraid. We sang it tonight. Don't be afraid. But never forget who he is. So then the king and all the people, they offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon, verse 5, he offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls. That's a lot of steak, Pastor Mark. That's a lot of porterhouse steak. That's a lot of fillets. Can I get an amen from the men? Yes. Seasoned to perfection, offered on the grill. Oh, wait, I mean on the altar. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Talk about mutton chops. Okay? 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God, and the priest attended to their services, the Levites also with instruments of, of the music of the Lord. Notice, which David, King David, had made to praise the Lord, saying, for his mercy endures forever. Didn't we just read that? David did that. He wrote that psalm. 
And he made all those instruments. And whenever David offered praise by their ministry, the priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. Again, it wasn't until David's reign that music took on a prominent position in the ministry, in the worship, in the temple. Do you realize that? Because back in the Mosaic law, they had the sacrifices, but there wasn't a lot of music. At different times, they used trumpets for different things, but not until David David, and I love this about David because he was a shepherd and he sat out there in the fields watching his father's sheep. And what did he do out there in those fields? He probably had a harp with him, probably had a guitar. I mean, it really wasn't a guitar, it was a harp kind of thing and he would learn how to play it and he was skillful. And I'm sure there were times where he would sit out there and the sheep would, you know how sheep, they put their legs underneath and they kind of look like, like that sheep over there. And they're just resting and they're listening to David. I wonder, eating, reaching over and grabbing a thing of grass and eating, listening to David sing. But David was a worshiper. Saul, his predecessor, he wasn't a worshiper. David was a worshiper. He didn't care that nobody heard him except for God. He was singing to the stars, singing to the Lord and all that was there present with these sheep and A million lights in the sky, listening in. But David made these instruments, and he appointed certain Levites to praise the Lord, in addition to the sacrifices and the offerings and the things that God had required of the children of Israel through the ministry of Moses. And then verse 7, it says, Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. Notice... He did this because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. There were so many offerings. Think about that. 22,000 bulls. These are male cows with the big horns. Hallelujah. And 120,000 sheep. In addition to whatever else anybody else wanted to do, they needed a bigger grill. They needed something bigger. And so they did, and he sanctified more so that they could do. And then in verse 8, And at that time Solomon kept the feast seven days. What a great and wonderful thing this was. Again, I've called it the golden age of Israel. Because at this time, Israel would experience something so sweet and so precious that this will not happen again until the millennium. I really believe that this golden age when Solomon was king, maybe even 20 or 30 of those years were the best that Israel has and will ever see until the king of kings comes in the millennial reign. They they, they didn't have any enemies attacking them. Their temple was built. They were, the, the temple was the most incredible thing that had ever been built up to that time. There was order, there was peace. They were worshiping God, doing the right things, and everybody had joy in their hearts. Sort of like the way we should have right now. You know, this time of year, joy. I'd encourage you to be joyful. I don't know what has happened, and I'm just going to tell you a personal note. Over the last several years, I've been a sourpuss, I'll be honest with you. For various reasons, and I won't go into it. But this year, for some reason, I'm surprised by joy. I really am. I don't know why. I can't put my finger on it. 
but I'm joyful now more than I ever have been, and I, have, I can't figure it out. And I'm like, i got to stop trying to figure it out. Because once I figure it out, I'm going to be depressed. <laughs> I'm going to rejoice in God. I'm going to rejoice with my family. Would you rejoice with your family and look at each other and, and tell each other how much you love each other? And encourage one another. And even if you've got people in your family that are difficult with, can you just love them without getting on their case? Can you be a peacemaker this Christmas instead of somebody who's stirring things up and instigating and being a problem? Now, don't get me wrong. If you bring the truth into things, sometimes that happens and it can create a problem. The truth can sometimes do that. But can you do it in such a way where people are like, you know what, this person really loves me. They're not just trying to save me so that they have another notch on their belt or on their bedpost. It's not like that at all. You love them. Show the love. And then when you, you may get the opportunity to speak. And when you do, they know it's born out of love and not just trying to get somebody saved. Right? You follow me? But joy, don't ever forget joy. It's something that the Lord wants to give us. He's, he's given it to us, and we can either hang on to it and rejoice in it, and the joy in Him, or we can give it away by allowing the world and all the things going on in the news. Turn off the news. Turn off the news. Stop looking on your phone at what's going on. Pray. You know what a mess everything is. Just pray. And let God figure it out. So I'm surprised by joy. But verse 8, it says, At that time Solomon kept a feast seven days, again, a joyful thing, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly. Notice, from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. Now, I didn't get a chance to make a slide for you, um, but if you think of a map, think of a map of Israel, and think of where Damascus is. Like, here is Israel. You know, you've got the, the Sea of Galilee here, the Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea, and then Damascus is way over here in what you and I would call Syria today. But go up even further north, that's Hamath. So the very northern border of Israel, all the way down to the brook of Egypt, which is down there to the uh, southwest uh, of Beersheba, this is the location and everybody in that whole thing. Basically from north to south, everybody rejoicing Think about how great that would be, even in America, for all the church to be rejoicing. And not just this time of year, but rejoicing always and not, having a, not being consumed by cares that overflood us, our hearts, as they often do. But anyway, verse 9, And on the eighth day, notice, they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for the people of Israel. So notice it wasn't just about David. It wasn't just about the promises that God made to David. It wasn't just the promises that God made to Solomon. It was for the people as well. God was going to be faithful because he loved his people. And again, this seventh month... When all of this happened was the month of Tishri. This would be the same month that they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, commemorating God's faithfulness to them in their 40 years of desert wandering and how he, he kept them clothed and he kept them a shelter over them and he provided for them. That's what the feast was about. Verse 11, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. 
And think about this. What a great release this is. All of the preparation, the prophecies fulfilled, and the promises of God now coming to fruition. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever experienced something like that in your own life? Maybe you've been working hard for a goal, and all of a sudden it's been this several years of, of, of trudging uphill, and finally you attain the goal, whatever it is. And then it's just like, oh, God, thank you. I finally got there. I finally got the degree. I finally got the wife who didn't kill me. I finally got the husband who, you know, you know, whatever. I don't really like talking about guys at all because I am one. I know what's in the man. Very, very little. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, brothers. Love you, brother. Yeah, put, put your gun away. Yeah. Um, but if you have, then this next section as we look at this, if you have a New King James Version Bible, you'll notice that there's a heading to this next section of Scripture, and it's called God's Second Appearance to Solomon. If you have a King James, these headers, they're not there. The, King James, the New King James translators put them there to help us kind of dissect uh, certain passages and areas of the Scripture. But if this was the second time that we're, we're looking at it now, if this was the second time, then what was the first time? Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. And we're going to read this, and then we'll come back to this area, and we're going to look at the second time of what God did when he appeared to Solomon. Aren't you glad that God appeared to him? Has God appeared to you? Maybe not in a physical form, but as he, as he appeared to you, in a dream, perhaps just in the quietness and the stillness of your heart? Has he spoken to you through the word? Or in the stillness, in that still small voice in your heart? You can't deny it. You know it was him. Most of you have had those encounters. And you may not get a lot of them in your life where they're significant like this. And that's okay. Be glad if it happens once or twice or three times or four times where you're like, God really spoke to me, and I know it's him. And that's exciting, especially when he comes, when he does what he says he's going to do, or he fulfills the promise that he made to you. Incredible, incredible. Notice in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is the first time that God met with Solomon. It says, now Solomon, again, after the death of David, he made a treaty with King Pharaoh of Egypt, and he married Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, not a good idea. I don't know if he read Deuteronomy chapter 12. But anyway, or, or, I'm sorry, these other, other, other scripture, not that one. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm missing that up. But Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he married Pharaoh's daughter. And then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon. Remember I told you that Gibeon was the place where the altar and the, the, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and all of that was in Gibeon, not too far away from Jerusalem, but the, the, the ark itself was at this time in Jerusalem. But you need an altar to sacrifice. So he goes to Gibeon, he sacrifices there, and it says that Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And at Gibeon, it was at this place, not in Jerusalem, notice, but at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask, what shall I give you, Solomon? And Solomon said, well, what, well first off, what would you do if God gave you that kind of question? What, what is it that you want? 
I've written my name at the bottom of the check. I've dated it. What do you want? Really? I can fill in the blank? Fill it in. What, are, what do you want? $165 billion? Okay. Write it out. <laughs> wow. What would you do? I think I would probably have cardiac arrest. But not, not so with Solomon. Solomon said, You've shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And notice what God, God I think, was sitting there with his mouth wide open going, I can't believe this kid. Of course, God knew what Solomon was going to say, but until it's spoken, it doesn't count so much. But, but Solomon said it. And can you imagine the Lord just looking at him? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Now, in verse 11 through 13, we're going to see the Lord's unconditional promise to Solomon. An unconditional promise is one that, where God says, I'm going to do this, and it has nothing to do with you, your performance. It doesn't have anything to do with your performance, Solomon. This is what I am going to do, period. So 11 through 13, that's what we're going to see. It says, the Lord, then God said to him, because you have asked this thing, and you've not asked for a long life for yourself, nor asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, Behold, I have done. Notice the past tense. God had already done this. As soon as Solomon, before it even came out of Solomon's mouth, God had already placed it in his heart. I believe that. Because God already knew. He's just waiting for him to say the words. He's like, Solomon, I've already done it. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise, I have given you a wise and understanding heart. Underline those verb tenses. <laughs> I've given it to you. A wise and understanding heart, so that there, is, there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any be like you or arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. And God is saying this not because he did anything to deserve it. It was all by grace. It was unconditional. It was just a promise that God gave to him. There were no conditions attached to it. But now look at verse 14. Now God's going to give a, a conditional promise. So if, circle or underline that word, it's a big word in the Bible. So if, if Solomon, you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then underline or circle that word too. Because whenever you see an if-then statement, it's, there's a condition. Does that make sense? Prior, there was no condition. This is what I'm going to do. But now he says, for you, if you do this, then I will do this. There's a condition here. That means that it is based upon my performance. There's something here 
that if I do, God will do. And if I don't do it, then he won't do it. Follow? And this is what he told them. If you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and keep my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And then Solomon awoke, verse 15, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, because it was there in the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And he offered up burnt offerings there in Jerusalem now, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all of his servants. And so now... Go back to Second Chronicles 7. Now we're going to look at the second time that the Lord appeared to Solomon. So the first one was, what do you want, Solomon? Solomon says, I want to be able to have, I want to have understanding and wisdom to, to judge your people. This is a great, these are your people. It's a great people. I need to know, I don't know how to go out or come in. I don't know anything. I'm just a youth. And here I am. I've inherited this great kingdom. It's the most wealthy kingdom ever in the history of the world. And here I am. I need help. <laughs> I need lots of help, Lord. And he's like, oh, Solomon, I'm going to give you more than help. I'm going to give you all the stuff you didn't ask for, but that any lesser of a man would have asked for all the money. But you could care less about the money. You cared about my people more. And that is a shepherd's heart. David wasn't concerned about money. David wasn't concerned because he had a shepherd heart. Like father, like son. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes it works out that way, sometimes it doesn't. So verse 12, now this is, it says, Now then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. This is the second time. And God said to him, I have heard your prayer, Solomon. In other words, what prayer is he talking about? The one in the previous chapter, verses 12 through 42. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So in order for the house to be called a temple, Sacrifice has to be offered. Do you understand that? You can't call a building a temple if there's no sacrifice in it. But once sacrifice happens, it becomes a temple. Or if it's designed for sacrifice, it is a temple. If there's no sacrifice, it's called something else. It's not a temple. But a, a temple is not a temple unless sacrifice is involved. And so now when we look at... Um, uh, verses 14 through 20, the Lord is going to be giving Solomon, again, notice, conditional promises that require he and the people of Israel to obey. Notice, conditional promises, verses 14 through 20. So if we're going to see conditional promises, what, what, what kind of words can we expect to see? If and then. And as we go through verses 14 through 20, I want you to circle the if then statements, because there's about six sets of them here, or at least three or four sets of them. So notice in verse 13, he says, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, and here's the, here's the verse, right? If my people, who are called by my name, and who is he speaking of? The Jews. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, notice, one, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked, way, wicked ways, then, and there's the other one to circle, then I will. Notice, if my people do this, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Notice two things. First, the promise was originally and specifically given to the Jewish people, not to the church. 
specifically given to Israel. Now notice second that the elements in this condition, notice the, notice the elements in this condition that are necessary. So what do they need to do? There has to be humility. If you'll humble yourselves and pray. So there needs to be humility. There needs to be prayer and seeking God and turning from their wicked ways. Then God will hear and forgive and heal their land. Now, the remedy here is the same that the Apostle John gave us in his first epistle. Do you remember what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? He says, John, being a member of the church, a different body from Israel, even though he was a Jew, he says, if we, church, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just not only to forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see that? Another uh, statement. If we confess, then he is faithful. So it behooves us then to confess our sins to God. And although this specific promise was given to Israel, I believe that the church as well, we can take some claim to this, this verse, this promise, because it seems that it is somewhat universal in nature because if you confess your sin, God forgives you and he heals you, doesn't he? I mean, we know that throughout the, the New Testament. We know that to be true. It's true of Israel. It's true of us as well. So we can claim this, but, but we have to remember where it was first given. But I think this could be true of us too. And let's think about that for a minute. Think about our country and where it is. Are you willing to turn from your sin Church, are we willing to turn from the things that we know of? You know, we read in the newspaper so often of this pastor of this megachurch, you know, caught sleeping with his secretary. This pastor of this megachurch or this small church is, uh, is having an affair with his secretary. This, this, this man is doing this, this man is doing that. And you know what? Everything is a mess. And yet we, the church... I think the Lord wants to get our attention again and bring us closer to himself and for us to look at ourselves in the mirror instead of playing games with our sin. And, and I'm pointing the finger at me too. We can't play games with us anymore. The time is short. Do you, do you know that the time is short? Time is getting close. The Lord is coming. And I, want, I don't want to be ashamed, even as a Christian. What am I going to be doing when the Lord comes for the church? Am I going to be sitting in a bar somewhere, drowning my sorrows? Am I going to be thinking evil things? Am I going to be in the midst of something that I shouldn't be doing when the Lord comes? Or am I going to be faithfully worshiping him, faithfully abiding in him, letting him do the work in me, reading his word and let it getting into me, and then being a light to the generation that's around us? People need to see the church on fire again. They need to see us loving Christ and loving the word of God and allowing him to change us so that we can be those faithful ambassadors to the world around us. The world is dying in their sin and we're the only hope. Jesus is their only hope, but God uses us. He uses us. He wants to use us. Are you willing to be used 
by God, then put away the things that you know right now that are gnawing at you and that are at your feet right now, just gnawing at your ankles and chewing on your Achilles heel. Because let me tell you, sin does that. It chews and it gnaws until you can't walk anymore. And then it comes upon you and just has its mastery over you. Now, I don't believe as a real believer that you're going to be overcome by sin, but we allow it, don't we? We allow things to creep in and we get to the line, we get to the edge we like to straddle the edge sometimes and kind of have a, you know, one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. My advice, stay as far away from that line as possible. It's really not that great anyway. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. Yeah, for a moment you're going to be excited, but then the bill comes due, and then the shame comes, and then the horrible feeling comes. Is it really worth it? No, it's really not. And you know that, I know that, through experience, it is not worth it. So let's stay away from that line and not play games with the world. Stay away from it. And let them call, a, let, 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 let them call you Mr. and Mrs. Goody Two-Shoes. Oh, you're too holier than thou, aren't you? And you can say, yes. No, just kidding. <laughs> In Christ you are. But we don't have to walk around pious. No, believe it, the only thing that's pious is Christ in us. He's the only pious. He's the only right one, the only holy one, and he's conforming us into his image. That's a great thought, isn't it? I love it. I want him to do it. I want him to consume me like that altar, like that, that steak on the altar, Mark. Pastor Mark, I want to see, I want to be, don't you want to be like that person on the altar and just say, Lord, consume the flesh in my heart in my life. Just consume it. Come down from heaven and torch it. Light it up. And then whatever's left, I'm going to be with you. So verse 15, he says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. Notice that God sees and hears all things. And this is why even in our prayer, we can pray to ourselves and God hears us. Our prayers don't need to be audible for he knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart, doesn't he? Verse 16, for now I have chosen and sanctified this house, God says, that my name may be there, notice, not just for the weekend, not just for a couple of years, no, my name will be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually, so now God is now going to, he's going to be fulfilling what he had promised the children of Israel 400 years prior to this. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we don't have time to read it, but I'd encourage you to read this, the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 12, because before the children of Israel came into the promised land, God told them, wait until you get into the land, and then I'm going to show you the place where I want you to worship, and I'm going to show you of the tribe, of the kings that are going to come. I'm going to show you, I'm going to be very specific about these things, and did God do that? You're reading it right now. In, in Solomon's dedication, in his, you're reading exactly him fulfilling what he had spoken 400 years prior. Do you understand how long that is? Think of when our country first started. What was it, 16, uh, what, 1607 or whatever? When they, you know, uh, you know, when the, when they came over from England, sometime in that Plymouth, right? When is it? Something. <laughs> I forget the date, but they came over, right? And here they are, and our country is only 400 years and 423 years or something like that. But if you think about 1776, you know, we became, you know, 
A country became a, we, we declared our, our country from separate being from, uh, from England, right? Think of how short of a time that was. That's about how long it's been for them at this time. And so, verse 17, and as for you, Solomon, here's another if-then statement, if you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, again, can you see the, see the ifs? If you do this, if you do this, verse 18, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel, but... Here's another one. If you turn away, if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and you go and serve other gods and worship them, then, here's the condition, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. It's important as we look at these conditional promises that God gave to Israel that we don't get confused in our performance concerning our salvation. Okay? Because, yes, God did give unconditional promises. This is what I'm going to do. And there were certain promises that he gave Israel specifically that were conditional. If you do this, then I will do this. And why did he say that? Was God wasting his time by telling Solomon now the second time? He's saying this again, the second time. Solomon, if you go after strange gods, I'm going to uproot you from the land. And did that happen? Yes. Solomon began to flirt with idols, remember, toward the latter part of his reign? He had a thousand wives and he built altars for all these different wives and pagan kings or pagan gods. And then that idolatry continued in Rehoboam and Jeroboam going forward and it continued and continued and finally God says, you know what, I'm done. The northern kingdom got taken into captivity in, in Assyria in 722. And then Judah gets taken captive in 580 or 606 actually in ba- Babylon And so God did exactly, and he allowed their temple to be destroyed. So God is already telling him, if you do this, then this is what I'm going to do. And behold, we know now through history that that's exactly what God did. But do not confuse these conditional promises that God gave to them as if somehow our salvation is based on performance. It isn't. It's based upon grace through faith. What does Ephesians tell us in chapter 2, verse 8 through 10? It says, for by grace, Paul says, by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and again, not of works, so I can't earn it, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice that for Israel, as well as for us, the church, that there are blessings for obedience, and there are also consequences for sin and actions. Isn't it true? 
even for Israel. So even as saved Christians, the actions that we do have consequences. Even as a believer, if I decide today that I'm walking in grace and I'm a believer, but I'm going to go rob a bank today, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to jail and none of you are going to bail me out. You're going to say, fine, you got what you deserve finally. Right? I'm going to sit in jail for quite a long time because my actions based upon the law, put me there. I put myself there, and I deserve to sit there for every second until the law says that I can be... Actually, in New York, they'd probably just slap your hand and send you home. But anyway, <laughs> good boy, here's a, here's a gift card. Now go away and don't do, it. don't do it again. I'm sorry, I'm so calloused. But our eternal salvation is granted by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross plus... Nothing, right? So God in verses 17 through 20 is now making Solomon doubly accountable for his actions. And the Lord had initially told Solomon these things when he first appeared to him in 1 Kings 3. So he's reiterating the same thing. So let's just go on. We've only got a couple verses and then we'll, we'll be done. I'm sorry to keep you. At verse 21, it says, As for this house, which is exalted, God says, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and this house? Because God is already forecasting, already prophesying, and telling Solomon, Solomon, I'm serious about what I'm telling you. You've got to stay away from these things. But if you do, if you do not obey me, this is what's going to happen. And it does. It happens to the letter. And they will answer, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods, and they worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. And unfortunately, history bears out that this is exactly what happened. God warned, God warned them, and they did not listen. And one of the great takeaways from this is that we remain obedient to the Lord. And when we fail or when, whenever we sin, we cry out to God in repentance, and then we're restored by his grace. Right? And as we read and study the word of God, let's not allow it to be just something that we fill our heads with, but rather something that we internalize, internalize deep in our heart as we read it. And may it affect every area of our life, not only our thinking, but in our actions as well. Amen? That's what God wants to do. And, and this is the warning for us, because God is giving to Solomon again the second time. The first time was in 1 Kings chapter 3. Read it again, and then read this passage again, and go, my goodness, he told him twice about what was going to happen if he didn't obey. And God doesn't waste his words. He knows our heart. And to me, that's a scary and a comforting thought. Because he knows me, he's able to tell me in advance. And he's given to us a lot in his word already. So when I read it, I'm like, Lord, I, I have a propensity to do that. And he's like, I know. That's why I'm telling you again. Otherwise, Rob, you're going to end up in jail. You can't rob that bank. Stop doing that. You're going to go to jail. And the elders and the pastors, they're going to laugh and they're going to, <laughs> they're going to say, throw away the key, throw away the key, keep him in there. And for good reason. Thank God that's not our lot, though, right? 
Let's dedicate our hearts this week and this, from here going forward, just to the Lord. Just give your heart to him and let him work into you that obedience, to give you a heart of obedience. I need that too. Pray for me too. Let's stand together and let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time together, and I thank you for this passage, Lord, that you've given to us, and I thank you for the warnings, Lord, that you give us. And Lord, we ask that you would just work into our hearts, Lord, the things that you had to tell Solomon the second time, Lord. I pray that we would hear it once, and that I would just, my, friend, my brothers and sisters here, including myself, we would just say, yes, Lord, not arguing with you, not trying to, but, but what if, Lord, but, but, but what if, what, what if I do this? To not say anything like that, but just say, yes, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd bless each one of us tonight, that you would encourage our hearts to follow after you. And, Lord, just help us to be loved. Help us to be willing to be loved by you, God, and help us to respond back in love to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless.